Good morning, Grace. Good to be uh, here with you. You've probably heard, I imagine everybody has heard the expression, uh, seeing is believing. Uh, Sometimes it comes out, you got to see it to believe it. Might even think of um, Thomas the Apostle, sometimes called Doubting Thomas, right? Jesus has appeared to, in his resurrection uh, appearance to the other disciples, Thomas wasn't there. They tell him about it, and Thomas says, unless I see the nail-scarred hands and put my fingers in the wound in his side, I'll never believe. We live uh, in a time and in an age, and we're a people who likes to live by sight. We like to live by what we see, and we think that there is assurance if we can only see uh, what it is we're thinking about or what we're believing We're going to see in the parable that Jesus uh, teaches today, it's in Mark chapter 4, you can go ahead and turn there if you'd like to, we're going to see uh, in that uh, parable that Jesus is going to contest the claim to some extent that seeing is believing, right? The scriptures in, in many ways contest that claim, particularly for our period in redemptive history. It's not that seeing is bad, right? It's not that seeing is wrong. And we do believe that, that uh, as, as, we, as we live out the Christian life and God carries us all the way home, we do believe that faith will give way to sight. But we're in the period of redemptive history that uh, theologians sometimes call the already not yet. So the, the reality of salvation has already broken into our experience in the word of, uh, and the work of Christ and our believing, but we're not yet fully glorified. There's much about the kingdom that we see without seeing all that there is to see. Jesus is going to say in this parable that that discipleship in this mode of kingdom uh, life is especially linked with a certain kind of hearing. There's a kind of hearing that gives clarity to our sight. There's a word of the kingdom that needs to be unpacked to help us understand what it is we're actually looking at. And the best example of this is Jesus himself, right? Jesus uh, born uh, in the lowly estate of a manger, right? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, uh, hail the incarnate deity, There's a veiling that takes place in the incarnation. It doesn't mean that he's less than God, but you look at Jesus and you don't see all there is to see. Isaiah in his uh, prophetic chapter in Isaiah 53 about the coming of the Messiah tells us that the Messiah will have no stately form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. You can look at Jesus, right? And if all you're relying on is sight, you can miss an awful lot. And so Jesus wants us to, to know today. He wants us to understand, he want, the original audience to understand that there's a kind of kingdom hearing that actually serves as a, the, the, the function of a kind of corrective lens to what we think we see. It helps us to see more clearly. So the word, the hearing, listening becomes instrumental in discipleship. And Jesus is going to use, uh, in this parable in Mark chapter 4, the image of a seed, right? He's going he's to liken his word to the scattering of seed. And that's a very fitting image for the point that he's trying to make, I think. Because when you look at a seed, you don't see all there is to see initially, right? You could, you could crush a seed with a single stomp of the heel. And yet, as Jesus will say in John chapter 12, If the kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, then it gives an amazing, explosive expression of life. Of course, he's talking about his own 
sacrifice to come. But the same thing is true with the word. The power is in the word. There's some counterintuitive work. There's power on display in the form of weakness, isn't there? But you look at a seed and you don't see all that there is to see. And that becomes a very fitting image for what Jesus is is talking about. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, we have some ushers in the back that have Bibles. Just put your hand up. They'd love, we need one up front, a couple up front here. We'd love to uh, let you use one. If you don't have one, we'd love for you to take it home with you. There's one down here as well. Um, I think this would be a very, every time would be a strategic time to engage the word by looking at the scriptures as well as listening to the preacher, but particularly, there's one over here, uh, would be a particularly strategic time to really sink your teeth uh, into the word. So I want to uh, read our passage, Mark chapter four, but before we do, I want us to pray very simply that the Lord, as Jesus calls for in this passage, would give us ears to hear. Let's pray. Father, would you unstop our ears as we come to hear uh, this word of Jesus this morning? Whatever it is that is distracting, clogging, impeding, obstructing, whatever it is that's diverting our attention uh, from giving our full focus uh, and, and, and good soil kind of listening to your word this morning, Lord, would you remove that distraction? Whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's frustrating, whether it's encouraging, whether it's the Super Bowl around the corner or underinflated footballs, would you help us to set all of those issues aside and give our full heartfelt hearing to the words of Christ this morning? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 4, beginning in verse 1. And he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones that are sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Thank God for his word. 
Jesus would have us understand through this parable that not all hearing is created equal. The point of this parable will ultimately be to discriminate what true hearing is from what true hearing is not, and in turn to show the blessings that follow from true hearing and to warn of the dangers of anything less than that. And Mark, who is, who is uh, the craftsman of, of this gospel narrative, has been preparing us to hear this parable from Jesus. He's been preparing us in the way that he has portrayed the responses to Jesus that have already taken place, even just to this point in the gospel. Think about the uh, religious leaders, for example. They have heard, in one sense, what Jesus has to say. And many of them have concluded that what he has to say is of demonic origin and deserves opposition to the death. That's a kind of hearing, but it is not kingdom hearing. Or we might think of the crowds. The crowds have been following Jesus extensively, pressing in, listening, wanting in some sense to hear more. And yet we know that as the life and ministry of Jesus unfolds, many in those crowds will depart when persecution arises and they come to discover that following Jesus too closely sometimes means being treated like Jesus. No, thank you. I think I'll pass. Or even his family, right? Kenny preached last Sunday. Jesus's family to this point in the gospel has heard what Jesus has to say. And yet at this point, they have not accepted it. They think he's a little bit crazy. They want to rein him in. They're concerned perhaps about uh, the family reputation or family esteem being bound up in negative ways with what Jesus is doing. There's lots of hearing without hearing taking place in the gospel. So the big idea here, the big takeaway from this whole message this morning, from this parable of Jesus is that if discipleship is bound up with a particular kind of hearing, let us all take heed how we hear. Take heed how you hear right now. Every engagement with the word of God is an opportunity, as we'll see in a bit, that is not only uh, comes with the potential for blessing, but fraught with peril if we ignore it. There is, this should be a warning to us this morning, not to coast in worship. It's easy to come in here and put it on autopilot, isn't it? I teach Bible and theology for a living, right? All week long. I I feel this tug sometimes to come in here. I I love teaching Bible. I love teaching theology. It's a a wonderful job. But sometimes I come in here and think, wow, I've taught Bible and theology a lot this week. I'm going to let Dave do the heavy lifting. I'm going to let Eric do the heavy lifting. I'm going to coast. Coasting in your hearing is dangerous, Jesus says. We need to be active participants in any engagement with the word. The parable, uh, the, the narrative breaks down into three basic parts. There's the first part in which Jesus actually tells the parable and its seeds and soils. And that's pretty simple. On the face of it, it's pretty easy to understand. We're going to start there. That's the easy part to map. Uh, then he's got some interesting things to say about the purpose of parables. We'll get to that. And then he interprets the parable as well. To map the first part in verses uh, three through nine, we get a discussion of these soils and seeds in the imagery of a sower going out to sow. The uh, the scene is set in verses one and two, crowd beside the sea. I would say this, you you should note in verse three and verse nine that this whole part of the parable is framed by the charge to listen well, right? Verse three begins with the command, listen. It's emphatic. 
verse 9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In between verse 3 and verse 9 is the narration of various soils. There's one seed. There's a diversity of soils. And the first three all portray different forms of not bearing fruit. Okay? The second and the third are more subtle than the first, but they're all unfruitful, ultimately. The first three soils. Number one, the soil, verse four, that falls on the path. The path is foot-worn. The path is hardened from uh, foot traffic. It is hard to penetrate, and the seed that is scattered on the path becomes just so much bird food, says Jesus. Soil number two, is the soil that falls on rocky ground with shallow soil. This soil is not impenetrable, but it is shallow. So the seed grows up quickly, which has an initial appearance of promise, but it dies just as quick because it has no root, it has no depth to sustain it amidst the elements. Soil three, Jesus describes this as the seed that falls among the thorns, This seed also begins quickly to grow, but it is choked out in time by the thorns that grow up with it. And the effect, Jesus says here, is that this seed too yielded no grain. In other words, where there is no fruit, and even in the third soil, there is no fruit, ultimately. Where there is no fruit, there is no true growth. Then the fourth soil. Good soil, Jesus says. Some of the seed falls among good soil, respectively producing 30, 60, 100-fold harvests, all fruitful, all bountiful. Some would say remarkably bountiful. That's the easy part. There is this section in the middle. Why does Jesus talk in parables in the first place? We're going to come back to that in a minute. But what I want to do is move to the interpretation of the parable. The nice nice thing about, uh, about preaching this parable is the definitive commentary comes from Jesus. Jesus tells the parable, and then he tells you what it means. So it's okay. Cite Jesus for my commentary. Um, And here, what we find in verses 14 to 20 is that the story that Jesus has told, Jesus is now going to interpret in the modes of certain kinds of hearing, right? The soils are linked to different kinds of hearing. The the seed is the word of God, and uh, the soil that it falls on is likened to different kinds of hearing. The first soil is likened to, I'm calling it neglectful hearing, right? It's compared to a certain kind of hearing. I'm calling it neglectful hearing. The point is not that hearing doesn't take place. The point is that what is heard is ignored. The word is sown and the word is rejected. Rather quickly, rather immediately, the hearer remains unmoved, but this is not a failure to hear. This is in fact culpable hearing. Okay? Neglectful hearing. It's like dismissing conviction. Sometimes we do that pretty quickly, right? Convicted about something. And it doesn't mean that you weren't convicted. It just means that you quickly get that out of the way. That's inconvenient. I don't like that. James uh, describes this phenomenon in James chapter 1 as a man who looks at himself in the mirror. And then as soon as he walks away, he leaves and forgets exactly what he looked like. That's the kind of hearing that is, the hearing has taken place, but it's neglectful, culpable hearing. I think the most extreme example of this in the gospel of Mark is the scribes from chapter three, who have become so hardened in their interaction with Jesus 
that by this point, they have become instinctively dismissive of his mission and his message to the point that they have convinced themselves that when they stand in the presence of light, they see darkness instead. That's frightening, right? That's dismissive, neglectful hearing. It's not surprising that Jesus then describes this kind of unhearing, fruitless hearing, as a satanic attack. Satan is the one who comes in and snatches the seed away. Again, it's not that the word isn't heard, but the seed is snatched so there won't be thinking, pondering, dwelling, inquiring, praying, investigating, studying, applying. Those things don't follow when the word is snatched. Interestingly, I think that means that Jesus is saying, how you hear my words is an arena of spiritual warfare. Isn't that interesting? It kind of seems mundane. Hearing? That? Hearing? Spiritual warfare? Have you ever stopped to think, tired mom, fatigued dad, that when you wake up in the morning before the children, right? And, 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 and this is a great example of not being able to see all that there is to see, right? If we took a snapshot of that, all we would see is a mom with bleary eyes in a bathrobe, a dad zombie walking to the coffee pot to get his caffeine fix. But those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, I think Jesus is saying when that happens, The world can't see all that's going on there. There is something of cosmic significance when they reach not only for their cup of coffee, but also for the word of God to feed their faith as the day begins. Something utterly cosmically significant is happening in those moments of pre-dawn wakefulness. We need not to dismiss the significance of those moments. The second soil likened to hearing I'm calling this shallow or superficial hearing. Uh, This seed is the seed that fell among the rocky soil with no roots and no depth. So the seed grew up uh, quickly, but then was just as quickly rejected when trial and tribulation on account of the word moved in. And this, while a little bit more subtle than the first, is a phenomenon that we see in the crowds that are following Jesus. When they begin to truly count the cost of what it means to be his disciple, Some of them are going to move on. But if we could flip that around for just a second, the counterpart of the truth here, right, in God's hands, the persecutions that he allows, the difficulties that he allows to come into the life of a believer are actually a blessing in the hands of God, right? They prove one's faith. They result in assurance. Think of weightlifting, right? Some of you guys are fitness buffs. The rest of us are just hanging on, you know, by a thread to our New Year's resolutions, Uh, Doug rebuked me about this the other day at basketball practice. He said, man, all you got to do is wake up and run one mile. It's just 15 minutes in the morning before. I I didn't do it yet this week, Doug. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) Yeah, next week. There's always next week. So some of us are just, but, but, but the reason that it's hard and the reason that some of us aren't more committed to it is because it's difficult. There's resistance. Getting under that bar and pushing, there's resistance involved. But what does the resistance provoke? The growth of your muscles, right? And so in God's kindness, in ways that are mysterious to us, we don't fully understand, he allows things into our lives to provoke growth, 
Right? Think again, James chapter one, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. Why would you do that? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It produces growth. In other words, when trial comes into your life and the word kicks in in such a way that doesn't mean it's easy, but it actually does sustain you, what will you know about yourself? You'll know the word has gone in deep. You'll know that there's maybe not perfect soil. Maybe there's weeding still to be done, but there's good soil at work. That's a blessing, isn't it? That's a gift to know that. Soil three. I call this Jesus and hearing. Okay, soil two, they're tried by persecution and affliction. Soil three is described as the worries of this life, deceitfulness of riches, and desires for other things kind of crowd out and choke out the hearing. Uh, These people are people, they're, they're in church. They're probably active, right? Involved in some ways. But I call it Jesus and hearing because it's basically a way of saying, I'll take Jesus on my terms. I'll take Jesus and fill in the blank, right? Jesus is okay as long as he doesn't challenge this area of my life, as long as he doesn't require me to yield this, right? And and, and this passage talks, one of the examples it gives is the deceitfulness of of, uh, riches. And Kenny talked last week about the blessing of family. Family is a wonderful blessing. But life in the family of faith is a better blessing. And sometimes the line of division that Jesus brings breaks right across your biological family. What, 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 what results if you, if you, if you say, Jesus, I'll take you, but, but as long as you don't mess with my family, right? You, or, or, or we might think here of the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and he says, I've kept all the commandments. What more do I lack? Jesus puts the finger on the idol in his heart and he says, you haven't even kept the first commandment. You have put something else above me. Right? You put something else before me. Forsake that idol and then come and follow me. The idol of riches squeezes out the seed or chokes out the seed of the word in his life. If we say Jesus, yes, but, right? Or Jesus, I'm going to hold back this one area of my life. What do we call that? Call that idolatry. And just as a rich young ruler uh, learns, there is no compromised allegiance in the kingdom of God's son. Soil four. Fruitful hearing, kingdom hearing. Verse 20. These people hear, accept, and bear fruit. 30, 60, 100 fold. This is kingdom hearing. This is not the all-star team. This is normal Christian living. This is what Christian discipleship looks like. They don't just hear and dismiss. They hear, they accept, they bear fruit. Variations in fruit, yes, to be sure, but they are all fruit bearing. And by the way, this doesn't mean that difficulty and temptation are absent for this group. It just means that their hearing and their fruit bearing is demonstrated as they persevere through the ups and downs that also come to them. So if I could summarize the contrast between soil number four and the first three soils, I think we can reduce the contrast to two. The first being fruitful versus fruitless hearing, fruitful versus fruitless hearing, and the second, deep versus shallow penetration. Deep versus shallow penetration. In other words, in other words, the first three soils are not fruit fruit bearing. 
They're not fruitful because the seed doesn't penetrate deep enough. The fourth soil, the good soil, the seed penetrates deeply enough. I think Jesus' point is that shallow engagement at the end of the day is not engagement at all. It's not kingdom engagement. Again, let's flip that around. Here's the good news. If you let the word in deep, if you hear the word of God, if you read the word of God in ways that allow it in deep into your life, it will have its way with you. The word will have its way with you. Remember Hebrews 4, 12 and 13? What's it called? It's living and active. It is a sword that pierces to the division of joints and marrow, soul and spirit. It wants to perform surgery on you. We don't just read the word. We let the word read us. We don't just exegete the word. We let it exegete us. We don't just interpret the word. We let it interpret us. If you let it in deep, it will have its effect. Look at verses 26 and following. Dave's going to preach this next week. I'm I'm not going to steal any thunder. I'm just going to read. Jesus, chapter four, verse 26. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. So we've got the same metaphor, right? He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Sows the seed on good soil. He goes to sleep and watches it grow. He doesn't even know what's happening beneath the surface, right? He can't see everything that there is to see going on beneath the surface. Why? Because there's life in the seed. And in this case, there's life in the word. If you let it in, it will have its effect. It will do its job. So we've got the parable, we've got the interpretation of the parable. Then we've got this really interesting segment. Uh, why, why, why are you teaching parables in the first place? Right Back to the, to the middle section, verses 10 to 13. Jesus says in verse 13 in particular that this parable is the key to all parables. It is the parable on parables, so to speak. Here, here's what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that it's the key to all parables, all other parables, because it explains all their symbolism and imagery. Right, there's, there's not a, there's not a, a, a code uh, sheet or symbol sheet or whatever in Ma- Mark chapter 4 that tells you the meaning of all other par- parabolic symbolisms. That's not what he's saying. It is the key to all other parables because this one shows you what true hearing is and what true hearing isn't. In other words, the key to unlocking the word of the kingdom, the mystery of the kingdom, is the right kind of hearing. Not a symbol cheat sheet, but the right kind of hearing. You think uh, the way that Mark has, has, has structured this passage here in Mark chapter 4, verse 3, the command from Jesus, listen. Verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 20, the good soil hears, accepts, and bears fruit. Verse 23, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 24, pay attention to what you hear. Starting to get the point, right? This, all of this in the context in which lots of hearing without hearing is taking place. Lots of hearing without hearing is taking place. And so Jesus effectively is saying, and in this somewhat uh, mysterious passage, I think that encounters with the word serve to separate those who truly hear and thus are truly disciples from those who don't. The word has that effect, right? In other words, the word reveals to you what kind of soil you're bringing to the encounter. Parable, Jesus is surrounded by people who want the miracles, but not necessarily Jesus. And so the parables, Jesus says, serve as a filter to sort those who truly want him from those who do not. Did you notice in uh, verse 10, 
And that when Jesus begins to explain the purpose of the parables, he does so, and he's not just talking to the 12 at that point. The 12 are there, but it's the 12 and those uh, who were with them, right? And those around him. So, so, so some segment of the crowd has broken off and come to Jesus. And Jesus is going to give his explanation of the parable and his purpose for speaking in parables because they've done something. What'd they do? They asked. They asked. They, could, they didn't trust their own perception. They could see that there was something they couldn't see with what Jesus was saying. So what did they do? They came to him. They asked, they inquired, they sunk their teeth and they said, tell us more, give us more, help us here. They didn't assume they understood that there was all to understand. They were in fact demonstrating what it means to be good soil. Begins with asking. It begins with coming to Jesus and sinking the teeth in for more. I do think, I mentioned this earlier, I I think another uh, effect of this is that hearing the word presents an opportunity, but that opportunity is not only come with the potential for blessing, but it is also fraught with peril for those who will not hear in this fashion, right? There's no such thing as inconsequential hearing or reading of the word. Why? Because you are always a certain kind of soil when you come into contact with the word. Here's how Charles Spurgeon put it. Another uh, Spurgeon quote for today from a sermon in... uh, from Jeremiah chapter one. Spurgeon says this, listen again, there is another immediate effect of the word of the Lord, which follows as quickly as the blossom appears upon the almond tree. Upon some hearers, it produces instant hardening. You remember how Paul wrote, we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one, we are the savor of death unto death. To the other, the savor of life unto life. You, dear friends, are deriving from every gospel sermon that you hear, either life unto life or else death unto death. If you get no good from it, you will assuredly get harm. An unbelieving hearing of the gospel is a multiplication of curses to your soul. It is another sermon for which you have to give account, another rejected exhortation recorded against you, another earnest invitation which you have refused and for which you will be held responsible. You are heaping up for yourselves wrath against the day of wrath, even while you hear the word of the Lord. Listen to this. I am not talking about what will happen to you when you die or when you rise for final judgment. I am speaking about what is happening now. The same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. The same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. Take heed that you do not soon see the almond tree blossom in this terrible sense. Take heed how you hear. Take heed right now. Don't let the moment of engagement with God's word pass you by as a passive hearer. Okay, parable, interpretation of the parable. Why do I speak in parables? If the point that we're getting from all of this is take heed how you hear, let the word in deep so that it will have its effect on you, maybe we should spend some time thinking about how to let the word in deep. And so that's what I want to do. I want to give our uh, concluding 10 minutes or so to a reflection of how we might till the soil of our lives in a manner of speaking by the use of some spiritual disciplines that will help us hear well. 
Help us to be kingdom hearers, profitable uh, hearers. And I, I, know, I know that some of you are absolutely just soaring in the way that you engage with, with the word and, and you have things to teach us and you'll have the opportunity to share those in your grace groups and around lunch tables this afternoon. These are just a few that came to my mind. If they're of, of, of benefit of help, then so much the better. Okay, uh, number one. Fight to adore the preciousness of the word. Fight to adore the preciousness of the word. I have heard it argued before by a pastor that encouraging people to be committed to regular Bible reading is a legalistic burden. That's so discouraging to hear, isn't it? Right, but, but, but I've heard that before. If we understand what the word is and the preciousness of the fact that we have it, if we understand what it is, we will not react to it like a burden right? God doesn't owe us salvation. He doesn't even owe us a disclosure of himself, does he? When you think about, I included some passages there on the Grace Group uh, questions page on the website, so you can take a look at those later on, but the Deuteronomy passages, it's a scary thing to receive the revelation of the Lord as a sinner, right? To receive God's revelation, to hear God's speech as a sinner, that's a frightening thing, We don't deserve to stand in his presence. We should be amazed, not only at the fact that he's made a provision for salvation, but he's told us how we can have reconciliation to him, that he's initiated that process. In this sense, the word of God is not so much a legalistic burden as it is a delicious, nutritious, hot, and fresh meal on offer to a starving man. When a starving man dives in and attacks that meal, we don't say, oh, he's so duty-bound. He just got to eat that steak. We don't say that. He's eating. He's living. He's consuming. He's nourishing. That's not obligation. That's life. But we sometimes, I I think because of how prevalent the word is in our our context, right? We all have probably five, ten Bibles at home on every phone, iPad, computer. It's just sometimes we we run the risk of, of, of finding that it's become common to us. It's familiar. I got X number of Bible hours coming in my classes at Biola. I got so many chapel credits, I have to. It's just, eh, familiar. How dare we? The preciousness of the word of God will lift it from feeling anything like a burden. Number two, fight to orient your life around the word. Fight to orient your life around the word. We've already mentioned that what we're talking about, what Jesus is talking about here, is the need for active engagement. We have an enemy who is bent on snatching the word away. We cannot coast. Got to push back with the sword of the spirit. Um, New City Catechism. Walt mentioned we're working through this year. Here's a great question and answer in the catechism to what we're talking about in terms of hearing and receiving the word. How is the word of God to be read and heard? Answer, with diligence, preparation, and prayer so that we may accept it with faith, store it in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. Kind of sounds like the good soil, doesn't it? Right? Heard, accept, bear much fruit. It's a great way of of thinking about uh, moving to put ourselves in the path of the word. And so when we talk about spiritual disciplines, by the way, all, all those are, those are a strategy. They're a tool to put us in the path of God's word. Because we know that if we just sort of sit around and wait passively for, the in, for, for inspiration to come upon us to grow spiritually, well, what will we do? Hebrews 2, drift. 
right? Drift. So we've got to put ourselves in the path of the word. And the point, I mean, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting for a moment that the point is that, that you have to check off a certain number of Bible chapters a day. In fact, you could read the Bible in such a way that, that if the goal is checking the box, if that is the goal, then you might actually miss the engagement with the word for the sake of the box, right? That's, that's happened to people before. But the, the point is orienting your lives to the word. Think of um, Deuteronomy 6 here. Hear, Israel, Lord our God, Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Um, you shall proclaim his word to your children as you go out on the way, as you come in at the end of the day. You shall bind the word on the frontlets of your eyelids and the doorposts of your houses. It's a, it's a picture of the encompassing uh, commitment and orientation of one's life to the word. That, that's a description of a, not just a life, but a house that is marked by the word of God. You can, you can find a morsel to chew on uh, sometimes maybe if you're in the shower and you've got, I have, I have Philippians 2 plastered on the wall of my shower. So I multitask, right? Shampoo and meditate on the son who emptied himself, right? Became nothing on our account so that at the name of Jesus, eventually every knee would uh, bow and, and Jesus would be exalted to the glory of God the Father, when I'm making popcorn in the kitchen, my wife has made all of this aesthetically pleasing, I can pop popcorn and be reminded from Romans chapter 8 that he, did, he who did not spare his own son uh, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? I'm reminded as I brush my teeth in the morning from John 10 chapter 10 that the thief came to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. You can chew on those words. Right? You, you may not get through a whole chapter, but engagement, oriented a life to the word. You may chew on a verse for 15 minutes in the morning rather than plow through a number of chapters. Seize those moments. Number three, fight to prepare yourself for worship. The corporate dimension, right? Fight to prepare yourself for worship. What if we all came to, to worship on Sunday morning having read the text that will be preached on the night before? Walt sends out an email every week uh, about sermon prep, uh, mentioning what the, what the passage is going to be and then giving some advanced reflections to till the soil of one's heart to effectively engage the word when they're in the worship service that Sunday morning. What if we even went to bed? What if we made it, what if, what if we made it a commitment to go to bed at a reasonable time on Saturday night so that we have the alertness to engage? I mean, some of us need to hear that, right? The alertness sufficient to engage on Sunday morning. Number four. Fight to listen well to preaching. There's a, the, the hearer in receiving preaching is, it, again, you're getting the point, right? It's active hearing. Try taking notes. A uh, study came out not too long ago. I'm not going to quote from it. Don't have the time. Um, but talked about the kinds of cognitive processing that come in note-taking, particularly note-taking with pens. And one of the contrasts that was drawn, and this even affects what I, my, some of my policies on laptops in the classroom, um, but even, even the, um, the, the contrast was done, right? You can, you can type it at a sufficiently fast speed that you can basically record verbatim everything that's being said. But recording can lead to a neglect of processing. You can have everything written down and not engage with the material at all. And this particular study in the Scientific American said they've noticed some things that the kind of cognitive processing that takes place when you take notes by hand, actually for, because you have to summarize, because you have to digest, because you have to just get the outline and get the basic points, actually makes you engage with the material in a way that you're thinking about it rather than just recording it. <clears throat> Interesting to, to think about. 
Number five. Fight to respond to the word with worship. Fight to respond to the word with worship. The fresh wind of scripture should lead to all kinds of worshipful, worshipful responses in our lives, right? And, and, and so here's my point. The worship, excuse me, the word does not just command our doctrine. It does command our doctrine, but that's not all it does. It doesn't just fill up our belief sets and our mental categories. It commands everything about us, right? It tells us how to grieve, how to weep, how to lament, how to rejoice, how to interact, how to communicate, how to prefer others to ourselves, Right? This is what scriptures command over us is total and all the whole array of responses are responses of worship. Number six, fight in how you dwell on the word. How you dwell on the word, how you let it travel with you beyond the moment of engagement. Corporately, I would suggest grace groups are a wonderful tool in the service of this objective. What do they do? They continue the conversation from Sunday morning. Our, sermon, our grace groups are primarily sermon-based discussions. They, they just carry forward the conversation. They think it through. They talk about it. They engage the passage. They look at parallel texts. They ask questions. They apply the sermon to one another's lives. Prayed a little while ago, talking about underinflated footballs. Here's another place that this could take place, kind of in a corporate dimension, Lunch. Isn't it easy to get up after worship service? Okay, that's done. Who's got the best nachos? What do you think about those underinflated footballs? Nachos and underinflated footballs are fine to talk about. But if you've, if you've just had a feast in some sense of the word, right, in, in, in the word of God and, and on offer in the discussion of it, the sermon of it, what a, what a wasted opportunity if we just pass that by and, and, and go away and forget that it ever even took place. Uh, individually, try praying scripture if you're not in the habit of that. It'll do wonders for your prayer life and your reading of the word of God, right? If you pray scripture, on the one hand, it'll change your prayer life from the same old, same old. It'll give you themes to pray on that are as as, uh, unified and diverse as the scriptures themselves. It'll give you confidence that what you're praying for is the will of God, and it will change the way you read scripture because you'll now no longer just read scripture for information, right? But for spiritual transformation for the impact that it has on your prayer life. Number seven. We're almost done. (laughs) Not going on forever. Fight to read the word well. Fight to read the word well. Here I would say, I think Bible reading plans are wonderful. And there's some from people that have been generated from people in this congregation that I have a ton of admiration for. Um, Really, really appreciate them. So Fred Sanders has a great Bible reading plan. And Matt Weathers has a great tool as well. You could talk to those guys about their, uh, the plans that they uh, recommend at some point. But the point that I'm trying to make is this. Allow the tool to serve you than to be something that is a master to you, right? In which case, again, the obligation is just checking off the box. Allow the tool to serve you rather than to become your master. One other thing that I would uh, just, by, by way of illustration, suggest in terms of fighting to read the word well, because we want our engagement with the word not just to be glancing and passing, we want it to travel with us throughout our day. I, I was remembering as I was, I was thinking about this particular point, um, a friend that I had in seminary, his name was Bob. This is a true story. And Bob was among the most word-saturated people that I've ever met. He was drenched in the word, right? It just, you, it just exuded from his life. And I asked him about, you know, what did you do to cultivate this kind of word-saturatedness 
in your life. And he mentioned a number of things. And one of the things that he said that I thought was a really good idea, he had a, um, one of these little composition notebooks that he carried with him, right? Just, you know, 99 cents, not a moleskin or anything, just real easy, cheap to carry around. And, and whenever he would complete his morning scripture reading, his morning meditation, he would try to summarize, to t- try to digest down whatever he just read into a memorable couplet, into a memorable couplet. Not necessarily aesthetically pleasing, but memorable. Because when he left, when he, when he left his house in the morning after, after he had read the word and prayed and had breakfast, if he wasn't going to school, he was going to paint, right? He painted and cleaned gutters for people. That was his job. And he couldn't exactly stand on the ladder and hold a Bible in one hand and read and paint. So he needed something that could travel with him throughout the day, that he could soak his mind in throughout the day. So he just came up with a memorable couplet. Every morning he'd write it down and think through it throughout the day. I tried my hand with that on this parable. It's not great. See what you think. The sower sows the word, take heed how it is heard. The sower sows the word, take heed how it is heard. Okay, it's good. I get it. I'm not a poet. But it's memorable. If I, if I don't have my Bible in hand, I can chew on that throughout the remainder of the day and remember basically the whole narrative of the sower sows the word. Okay, sower goes out to sow. There's different kinds of soil. They have produced different kinds of responses in terms of fruit. And the point of this is, is, is really not soil and seed so much as it is hearing. Take heed how it's heard because these unfruitful soils represent unfruitful kinds of hearing. And the point of kingdom hearing is that it hears, accepts, and bears much fruit. I can, Right? Travel, that, that can travel with me all day long. It probably helps scripture memory as well. Last one, eight. We've mentioned this before. We're not just fighting to read the word well. We're fighting to let it read us. We're fighting to let the word read us. In other words, we come to scripture with the, not with the disposition to judge the word, but to be judged by it to be corrected by it, to be transformed by it. How does Hebrews 4 again, how does this word exegete me? What change does it want to cultivate in my life? What would a Holy Spirit wrought response to this word this morning look like in my life if the Spirit were to birth that in me? What would that look like? Lord, would you help me to trust your word over against my faulty sight? Would you give me the correction that I need? Well, we're, we're going to go into our time of, of reflection before closing in worship here in just a moment. And, and some of these tools, maybe they're useful to you uh, to think about how to let the word, right, go in deep. Let me just encourage you, whether you do it now or later in the day or in a grace group setting, that, that sometime um, before hopefully the day is done, you give some time, you give some attention to praying about what it might look like for you to think about a handful of specific ways that you might let the word more deeply into your life this week. I'll pray, and then we'll move into that time of reflection and worship. Father, I pray that our hearing this morning would not be wasted as we travel from this place and face a host of other obligations and distractions. Lord, would you not allow them to clog up our ears and block out our reflection on the urgency of letting your word in deep to our lives. I pray that there would be a great harvest of fruitful hearing as we linger on these words of Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.